Chapter 11 of Mystery of the Ambush in India. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Peter Tomlinson, London. Chapter 11 A Thief in the Night. In their half wrecked cage, Chandra and Kamuka realized all too thoroughly how the prospect of sure death had switched from them to Biff. After their experience, his frantic shout told them everything. It was pitch dark in back of the jeep's headlights. The marksmen in the trees couldn't even guess the tiger's location, let alone stop it with a chance shot. But it wasn't a chance shot that came. From one of the platforms, a sharp beam of light cut a thin path through the blackness, turning a brilliant spotlight on the open jaws and glittering eyes of the great beast that was already mashing the jeep's windshield with its mammoth paw. That sudden shaft of life was a bull's-eye in itself. Now, if a rifle muzzle could only score an identical hit. As that hope sprang to the boys who watched from the cage, it was answered in a realistic way. A rifle crackled. The tiger's big head jolted back and its snarl broke. Biff saw that happen as he looked up from behind the wheel. Now the tiny circle of light was focused just behind the tiger's ear. Again the rifle spoke. The tiger's whole body came forward, but not in a lunge. Instead, its quarter ton of dead weight landed across the jeep's hood, crushing it down upon the motor. Then the striped body rolled to the ground, where the sharp beam picked it out again, probing it from head to tail. No further shots were necessary. Biff came up shakily behind the wheel, found that the jeep would still run, and backed it so the headlight shone full on the tiger. The creature not only was motionless, its odd, distorted pose proved that life had left it. Barma Shah came down from his platform, bringing the rifle with the thing that looked like a telescopic sight above the barrel. Only it wasn't a telescopic sight. It was a special flashlight powered by multiple batteries and focused down to almost a needle beam. I knew I might need this, declared Barma Shah, so I tested it last night at just the right range. The light is the rifle's sight. He lifted the gun, pointed it up into the trees, and picked out the top step leading to the platform that he had just left. Just spot your target, pull the trigger, and that's it. That was it, complimented Biff, but it took a good cool hands and steady nerves to do it. Barma Shah's ragged features spread into a broad smile. He suggested that instead of going back to the village, the boys accompany him to the hunting lodge at Kiwal. Biff accepted the invitation, but Chandra wanted to return to Supari to give the villagers a first-hand account of his harrowing experience in the cage. Naturally, he needed Kamuka to support his testimony, so Barma Shah agreed to pick them up at Supari in the morning. The Kiwal hunting lodge impressed Biff immensely, as it was equipped with all modern conveniences, including air conditioning. It also had a telephone, to which Barma Shah gestured as soon as he and Biff were alone. Then, with a broad, pleased smile, he declared, I talked with Calcutta by long distance this afternoon. You will be glad to know that Diwan Chand and his gatekeeper, Nathu, came out all right. Nobody was after them. Biff grinned, then became serious. I know that, he said, they were after me. And this. Biff brought out the watertight container. From it he took the chamois bag, then the jewel case, finally the huge glowing ruby. 
He handed the jewel to Barma Shah, who studied it as though he had seen it often. Then, as the stone's glint suddenly became more vivid, Biff added, Diwan Chand said its sparkle showed that the charm was working well, but you had a lot to do with that tonight. Tonight, perhaps, yes. Barma Shah returned the gem to Biff and shook his head. But the other day, if I had known you would run into that trouble at Chan's, I would have gone there myself instead. But Mr. Chan said that you were marked. True, but so were you, as it turned out. Yes, agreed Biff, but Chandra helped me out fast enough. Our real trouble was with the thugs on the road. Thugs on the road? Tell me about that. Biff detailed the incidents of the train trip, the detour by the old abandoned temple, and their final arrival at the Grand Trunk Road. As he concluded the account, Barma Shah shook his head again. And to think that I let you go through all that, he said, while I was waiting for you on the Grand Trunk Road. But how, queried Biff, did you know that we were coming that way? From your father, explained Barma Shah. He told me all about Chandra, the boy who worked for Jinnah Jad. That is why I came here to Kiwal, so I would be near the village of Supari, where Chandra's uncle lives. Naturally, Chandra would bring you there. But how did we happen to come along just when you were here for a tiger hunt and the villagers were so terribly excited over it? They are always tiger hunting here at Kiwal, replied Barma Shah with a smile, and the people in Supari are easily excited. If Matapar cries tiger, tiger, he knows that Thakur will bring out the villagers as beaters by day and even as bait by night. I never thought of that. And I never realised that the thugs were so active again, commented Barma Shah. The way the Kali cult took over that old temple is surprising indeed. I shall notify the local authorities and have them investigate it. Perhaps it is more widespread than it appears. The next day Barma Shah and Biff drove over to the village and picked up Chandra and Kamuka. They continued on their way, laughing over the fact that, of all the party, the one that had taken the worst beating from the tiger hunt was the jeep. However, the staunch vehicle was in good running order, and the boys began to enjoy their tour with Barma Shah. A tour it actually became, for Barma Shah decided it should be that way. He even insisted that Chandra put on European clothes similar to what Biff and Kamuka were wearing. So they stopped at the first important town on the Grand Trunk Road and bought Chandra his new outfit. Chandra was amazed when he studied himself in a big mirror at the clothing store. This is better than any jadu, decided Chandra. If Jinnah Jad should put me in the basket wearing my old clothes and bring me out in new like these, people would think I was a different boy. You'd have to make jadu yourself, returned Biff. It would take real magic for you to change clothes while you were curled around the inside of that basket. Chandra laughed at that, and then the laugh was turned on Biff when Barma Shah picked out a woven straw hat with a rounded dome-shaped crown and broad, sharply downturned brim. He placed it on Biff's head, saying, Try this on for size. The hat was so big that it came clear down over Biff's eyes, the brim hiding his face almost to the jawline. Looks like Biff is trying the basket trick himself, observed Chandra merrily. Where did he go, Kamuka? I don't know, replied Kamuka. Last I saw, he was climbing into a basket that looked like a hat. Now he is vanished, complete. 
Biff ripped off the hat, somewhat red-faced and flustered, only to enjoy a laugh himself when he saw Chandra and Kamuka peering over counters and behind racks as though they were trying to find where he had gone. Then Barma Shah was handing Biff some smaller hats of the same style, and among them Biff discovered one that was just his size. Very good, approved Barma Shah. That brim still comes low enough to hide your hair rather well. And the sun visor helps too. The visor was of dark transparent plastic set in front of the hat brim, and it added somewhat to the depth of Biff's tan. It proved helpful too when Biff was driving the jeep, for Varma Shah decided to travel along secondary highways that lacked the shade provided by the Grand Trunk Road. Traffic too was less, but rough stretches of road slowed their trip. There were delays too at rivers where there were no bridges, only ferries that looked like tiny floats or rafts, the sort that might tip the jeep into the first current they encountered. But the rafts were well balanced and the natives were skilful with their poles and oars. Each crossing was made without incident. Barmashar had brought sleeping bags and bedding so they could stop at dak bungalows or rest houses along the way. To all appearances, Barma Shah might have been a private tutor taking some privileged scholars on an educational tour of the Indian byroads. And in fact, the boys were learning a lot. Biff was especially impressed by the monkeys. He thought he had already seen a lot of them in India, but now they were boldly jumping over the jeep whenever it stopped and ready to snatch up whatever they saw and wanted. Chandra said there were a hundred million monkeys in India. Biff was ready to believe it when they stopped at a dak bungalow near Agra and had to slam doors in the faces of the creatures to keep them from coming in the bedrooms. That afternoon they drove into Agra to see the famed Taj Mahal on the bank of the Jamuna River. One of the world's most beautiful buildings, it impressed Biff as a dream brought to reality in living marble. Later they went to a telegraph office where Biff sent a wire to his mother, which simply stated, All well, still on way, love to you and twins. Barma Shah decided that the telegram told enough, yet not too much. He smiled when Biff also showed him a postcard with a picture of the Taj Mahal, which had the printed statement, India's most priceless jewel for you to hold in memory. Under that, Biff had written, and I really am holding it, bag and all. Biff. He had addressed a card to Likake Mehanelli at Darjeeling. Send it, decided Barma Shah. Only your Hawaiian friend will know that you mean the ruby rather than the Taj Mahal. After dinner at a restaurant in Agra, they drove back to view the Taj by moonlight, when its graceful marble dome and slender minarets were softened into an incomparable silvery whiteness, a striking contrast to its splendour by day. They were still talking about the Taj when they arrived back at the rest house, where they reduced their tones to whispers rather than rouse the monkeys, which apparently had gone to sleep in the trees. But when Biff himself was dozing off, he heard occasional patter on the roof and scratchy sounds outside his window, indicating that some of the creatures were about. In his dreams, Biff could see monkeys swarming over everything, even the Taj Mahal, until, oddly, they seemed to be clambering over the cot itself, 
Still half asleep, yet aware of where he was, Biff could feel their breath on his face, their pesky hands clutching at the bag containing the ruby. Then Biff's eyes came open. He made a convulsive grab with both hands. In the filtering moonlight from the window, he saw a face that was human in size and form, yet leering like a monkey's. He caught hands that were human too, but long, thin-fingered, and as writhing in their touch as a snake's coils. Swiftly, expertly, those hands had grabbed the pouch that contained the great ruby and were twisting its chain around Biff's neck like a strangle cord. End of chapter 11 Recording by Peter Tomlinson, London